How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Thumbs up. Yes. Cool. Good. I love it. Um, awesome. Well, uh, my name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I get to preach this morning, and Ed's timing was really good because he was out really late last night at the football game. Um, I was at the Blazers game last night, actually, which was very disappointing, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> we, we, we lost. It was, it was brutal. Um, <clears throat> but that's all right. Uh, I was not out nearly as late as Ed, so we're okay. We're good. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, um, just a quick little update. Maria and I actually just got back uh, from, we spent six days down in L.A. We were visiting her sister and her husband, uh, whose name is also Brandon, which is funny. Uh, but uh, we, they just had their second baby. And so we were down there being sort of like the, the post the post-new baby doula people getting the, the house all ready to go, cooking lots of meals, and watching our 19-month-old nephew. And we are really satisfied with our decision to wait to have kids. Um, but no, he's, he is an amazing kid, and we had a great time with him. And mom and little baby Addison are home, and uh, they're both doing very well, and she is an amazing little baby. It's really cool. So, um, but yeah, glad to be back. Glad to be here and to be preaching this morning and continuing our series in Romans. So we've been looking at the book of Romans, and uh, we have been kind of taking a, a, an examination of what the book of Romans has to say about living the Christian life. What is Paul uh, trying to, to get across to his audience about what it means to live for Jesus. And so we've been in the book of Romans slowly going through for the last several months. Uh, and then we, well, we, we took a break for the summer and did the Psalms, but we were there before in Romans as well. And now we're finishing up the book. So we're not finishing it this week. We'll finish it in the next week or two. However, we're kind of starting to wrap up the book of Romans and Paul is starting to wrap up the book of Romans as well. And what he is doing is he's trying to leave his audience with some things to think about, some stuff to chew on, uh, and some examples to follow as he goes through and finishes up the book of Romans. So, so far in the book, Paul, basically from chapter 12 onward, has been talking about what it means, what we do as Christians. What are the things that we do? We offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. We do all these things that, uh, that honor Christ in the world. He's talked about internal realities, like our own holiness, our, the way that our minds are being stayed on Christ and being transformed and renewed by the Spirit as we follow Jesus. He's talked about uh, how our, um, our love for Jesus also extends so that we forgive our enemies and we, we do good to overcome evil with good. We do those things as a result of what uh, Jesus has done in our lives. He's talked about uh, not just stuffing down our hurts and walking away, but actually forgiving our enemies and doing good to them. He's talked about how Christians with differing convictions about different ways to live out the Christian life need to actually bear up with one another and lift one another up and not actually tear one another down just because somebody might have a slightly different conception about how to live out their Christian faith than you. And how we are to build one another up and not put a stumbling block in these people's way as they're seeking to follow Jesus. He's talked about how we are to submit ourselves as Christians to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. He's talked about how we are to be in the world. 
And if we were to just stop right there, if Paul ended his letter at the end of Romans 14 and was like, all right, cool, love Paul, I'm done, um, we probably would get this impression that living the Christian life has mostly to do with our own holiness, our own piety, our own behavior, our own attitudes, and this sort of internal stuff that goes on in my heart, as well as my personal sort of vertical relationship, me and Jesus. But here's the beauty, and here's what happens with this kind of, as Paul starts to wrap up his letter, is he talks about how that is not the end all be all of the Christian life. It's not just about my vertical relationship with Jesus. It's not just about my personal behavior, but it's about how the love of God, as it transforms my life, extends out to others and brings others in. We are talking about how the gospel includes people. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk uh, through this relatively long passage towards the, uh, this big chunk of Romans 15. We're going to kind of break it up piece by piece. We're going to talk about what Paul is trying to say. Now, let's start in verse 8. And I'm not going to read the entire passage all the way through. What we're going to do is we're going to kind of go like chunk by chunk through here. Um, and so I'm going to kind of go through here and make sure that I'm on the right slide. All right, cool. All right, so there it is. All right, here's what he says. He says, in, starting in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Here's Paul's point in this chunk, this little passage here, and this is, it is this. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is for Gentiles too. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is for Gentiles too. Now, when Paul talks about who Jesus is, he talks about him in a way that has to illustrate that he's sort of the long-awaited person who's come to save the nation of Israel. But he also, throughout the entire book of Romans, talks about how the Gentiles, people who were outside of the nation of Israel, are grafted into the covenant as well. And together with God's people, worship him. Now, he says, Christ became a servant to the circumcised. And what that is, is Paul's using sort of like a, a favorite shorthand way of saying that Christ became a servant to the people of Israel. Uh, circumcision, right, was the, was the sign of the covenant, that you were part of the covenant community. And so when Paul says this word, what he typically is doing, and what he's doing right here, is he's talking about the people of Israel. Christ became a servant to the Jewish people. He became a servant for two reasons. The first one is this. 
in order to demonstrate that God is faithful to his promises. So here's what he says. He says, in order to, he became a servant to the circumcised in order to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So what are these promises? What are the promises that he's talking about? There's, uh, there's a number of them, but one uh, is this promise that God made to Abraham, and then later he made it again with Isaac, and later he made it again with Jacob, to make these people, this one family that comes from Abraham, into a large nation, a prosperous nation full of people who are going to sort of fill the earth and worship God as one family. There's this promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they were going to become a great people. And Jesus becomes the person who represents the fulfillment of that promise. There's promises to deliver these people, to deliver God's people from oppression, from injustice, and from sin. God rescues them. He says, I will rescue you out of all of this stuff. And I will bring you into a new place, into a new community. And Jesus is the person who all of those promises are bound up in. He comes and he says, uh, the promises, uh, he made a promise to renew and restore the people's heart. To give them a new heart that would want to follow God wholeheartedly. Ha, fun, right? Uh, and he, Jesus is the person who creates that reality. He promises to reach the nations, the surrounding nations around the people of Israel as they follow God in covenant faithfulness. They're made into a new community that brings love and justice and mercy and compassion and shalom into the world around them. And he reaches the nations through them. And what does Jesus do? He becomes this person that is the representation of what God is doing and how he is doing that. And it doesn't just stop there, right? Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's faithfulness to his promises to his people, right? And it doesn't just stop there because reason number two is this. He became a servant to the people of Israel in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Gentiles, people who are outside of the covenant community of Israel, seeing Israel living a life that is reflective of the fact that God has been supremely merciful to them, and they say, mm, I want some of that. God is good. So what does he do? He sort of underpins his argument this way. He says, this is why Jesus did this. Now, check it out. It's not just me that's saying this. It's the Old Testament that says this. And he moves on, and he says this, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is a person who is part of the community of Israel who says, I'm going to praise you among the Gentiles. This is going to be a thing that happens among all of us. I'm going to sing to your name. And again, it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. There's an inclusion there, right? And he says again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him, lift him up, sing his praises. That's what extol means. With no exception, all the peoples. And then Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So this, this promise, this faithfulness of God does not just stop 
with the people of Israel. It extends to the Gentiles too. And it was always meant to extend to the Gentiles. Because here's what Paul does here, and I think it's so clever, and it's really cool. Paul quotes from the Hebrew Bible four times here, right? He opens up his Hebrew Bible, and he's like, oh, here's four places where this talks about this. But he doesn't just sort of like find one book that says this. He actually quotes from each major section in the Hebrew Bible. So to kind of like give us a little bit of context for this, in, Jew in Jewish tradition, in Hebrew tradition, the Hebrew Bible is built out of three main components, three main parts, okay? So we have the first five books of the Bible, which Jewish people will call the Torah, right? We would maybe call it the Pentateuch or, you know, the books of Moses or something like that, but the first five books of the Bible. So we have Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy, right? And after that, you have what uh, in Jewish tradition is, are called the prophets, and those start with Joshua, and they go all the way through Malachi, the end of the book of, of the 12 minor prophets. But then you have a third section called the writings, where you have things like Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, First and Second Chronicles, these kinds of books that are not part of the first two, but they are this like section in and of themselves, okay? And Paul quotes from each one of these. So he quotes from Psalms a couple of times, so he quotes from the writings. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy, so he pulls all the way back from the Torah. And then he pulls from Isaiah, from the prophets. And the point of him doing this is this. He says, look, this is not just one isolated incident. This is not just one single verse that I have found. This is a story, this is a thing, a theme that has gone through the entire Hebrew Bible and you guys need to see this. This has been a thing that has, that has been on God's mind since the very beginning. This is a thing that, that God has been wanting to do through the nation of Israel from the very beginning. It was always supposed to be this way. The Gentiles and the other nations were always supposed to be people that God reached through his covenant community. And then he pulls from this quote from Isaiah, and he finishes up with a prayer. He says, may the God of hope, so he pulls on that word hope from Isaiah, and he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Hope in what? Because hope right? Hope is not just like a fuzzy feeling that I have in my heart. Hope is not just my sort of like eternal optimism. Hope is not toxic positivity where it's like, the world is burning down, but I'm fine, right? <laughs> like, uh, what is the REM song? It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine, right? I'm fine. Uh, no, it's not that. Hope is in something. Hope has an object, and what he's talking about is hope in the fulfillment of God's promises. That's what he's been talking about for the rest of this passage, right? Hope that God is actually going to do what he said he's going to do. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that he's actually going to do what he said he's going to do. What a beautiful prayer. So he moves on, and Paul kind of like moves on, and he's going he's to talk about from here how this idea, the fact that the Gentiles are included, the fact that the gospel has reached out beyond 
what the like what maybe people would think are the borders toward people that are outside and he's going to say he's going to talk about how this is like why he went on his mission to the gentiles and his sort of his point the way that he grounds this is in this reality the gospel includes the gospel includes now, I know that some of us, and, and I have heard this too, but I know that some of us have probably heard the opposite, that the gospel is exclusive in the sense that Jesus, the Messiah, is the only way for people to be saved and enter into God's family. And that is 100% true. That is the reality. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved, right? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. That is an exclusive claim, yes, right? Jesus says, this is what, uh, this is the truth. However, there is this inclusivity that is inherent in that as well. Because guess what? Anybody can believe that. Anybody can actually come to the realization that that is the truth. God can draw anybody into the, his family. So the gospel includes even that person, even that person. The, go the gospel includes. So he's going to kind of unravel this as we go, and he's going to talk about why he went on his mission to the Gentiles because of this. The gospel includes, it includes the Gentiles. So here's what he says in Romans 15, verses 14 and 15, the beginning of 15. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, brothers. Now, what he, when he says brothers, he's not just talking to the males in the crowd. He's using a term that's inclusive of men and women. So he's saying, all y'all, all right? He says, I myself am satisfied about you, all y'all, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Okay, so here's the thing. He's like, listen. He's essentially saying, listen, you guys are good. You guys are good. He actually offers his audience a compliment. And part of the reason for that is because he's trying to win them over to his way of thinking, right? He's not going to come to his audience and be like, listen, you guys are dumb. You guys, you guys suck, we need to move on, okay? Uh, no, he's like, listen, you guys are educated. You have the ability to talk with one another and to build one another up, right? You can actually instruct one another in the faith. You know enough about Jesus that you can actually talk intelligently about who he is and what his bearing is on your life. You have a solid foundation, guys. You have it figured out in this case. But what he's also saying is he's like, look, you guys are good. So what you don't need, what you don't need is another small group, another Bible study, another service project, another devotional, another journal, another program to do, another podcast to listen to, another teaching to examine. That's that, you don't guys, you guys, you don't need that. I need to remind you of other stuff. And the other stuff is this. The gospel includes them over there. The gospel includes everybody. I've written to you by way of reminder, very boldly. 
His audience needed to be reminded about what the Christian life really leads to. Living the Christian life doesn't just end with me sitting in my bubble and having another Bible study and filling myself up with more knowledge. The Christian life leads to loving people who are far from God. That's what it leads to. This love of God that we have experienced, if we follow Jesus, right, this love of God that has transformed us and changed us, the love of God that has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, according to Paul in Romans 5, that love transforms us, and then it goes outward. It always was meant to go outward. The love of God, by its very nature, can't just stay in me. It has to go out. It has to go out to others. And Paul sees his ministry to the Gentile as his expression of that. He's like, look, I have been loved so profoundly by God. And there are people that are so far away from him. But guess what? I'm going and spending some time with them and having profound life giving, life-changing relationships with them. So then he moves on and he talks about this. He says, because of the grace given to me by God, so he's reminding them of all these things. He's reminding the people, like, look, the gospel is about going out too, right? Because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified, and the Holy Spirit. Now, think about this word, priestly. Think about that phrase. Paul thinks about his service to the Gentiles, his going out to them as a priestly service. And I think that this priest concept, this priestly concept, was probably very important to Paul. Paul came out of uh, being a Pharisee. He was very, very entrenched and involved in the Jewish religion at the time. He was a powerful leader among the people. He was very familiar with the priestly practices and the priestly office. He knew what the priests were supposed to do, which is stand in the gap between the people and God and bring the people toward God and bring God to the people. There's this priestly person who stands in the gap and works on behalf of the people and on behalf of God. And Paul thinks of himself as fulfilling a priestly service to the Gentiles, the people who are so far from God. He sees himself in that role. He sees himself as creating space for the people who are far off from God to draw near to God and holding space for them. And here's the crazy part is Paul isn't the only priest who is doing this. Because here's what First Peter says. This is what Peter says to the church. He says, as you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Ding, ding, ding. Together, we are a being built up into a holy priesthood. Paul is not the only priest. We have a priestly ministry as well. 
Anybody who follows Jesus, who has been transformed by his love, has a priestly duty. We all have a priestly role to play. We get to stand in the gap as well and help people who are far from God see who he is. See his love, experience his love and his life. We get to do that. That's a pretty high responsibility. It's a pretty big deal. So Paul goes on after he talks about how he's got this priestly duty to the Gentiles, and then he sort of explains what his resume is about the, the, the Gentiles and his, and his um, ministry to them. He says this, Christ Jesus then, in Christ Jesus then, I have uh, reason to be very sad, or wow, where is it? Proud of my, hang on, sorry, I missed this. Yeah, there it is, verse 17. All right, cool, all right. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul sort of gives his resume here. But the thing that's on his resume, like at the very top, is like, well, Jesus gets all the credit. Okay? He's the one who does it. He's the one who is working through Paul to do this. And then, he, and then he quotes Isaiah again. He quotes Isaiah again. His main point, his fundamental point, is that the people who have not heard of God are the ones that he is interested in reaching. The people that are far away from God are the ones that God is interested in bringing in to his life. The Christian life means we reach out to these people, people who are far from him. Paul is talking about evangelism. He's talking about his evangelistic mission, and he's using himself as an example so that we can follow. Now, when I say the word evangelism, I think that there's a, a number of different maybe reactions or thoughts that come into our head when I say that word, right? Like, uh, maybe, maybe there's a, a number of different images that come into your head, right? I'm, I'm willing to bet that we all have some kind of immediate reaction. And maybe we immediately picture some kind of like church-sponsored, like a mission trip or something where a group of people get on a plane and they go off somewhere and they go and they do some service projects and, you know, build a house or something like that. And then they are sharing the gospel as they're doing it, right? In a, in a community that's not their own. Um, maybe you think of someone that you know who is just constantly sharing the gospel with the people in their life. Maybe you think of a missionary or a missionary family who have uprooted their lives in the States, flown overseas, 
and now they're embedded in a community, you know, halfway across the world or something in some place where they, maybe people haven't heard the gospel, and they're embedded in this place and forming relationships and providing services and doing these kinds of things in order to show the love of Jesus to people. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of evangelism. Maybe you think of something like, like a Billy Graham crusade or something like that, where we fill a stadium full of people who we know that need Jesus, and we play some songs, and we have a powerful speaker get on the stage, and they talk about who Jesus is and how he died on, everyone, on their behalf and rose from the dead, and then people come forward and receive Jesus, and maybe, maybe that's our idea of evangelism. Maybe there's an emotional reaction to that word, right? Maybe, maybe there's an emotional reaction of like, of like the warm and fuzzies, maybe when you think about that Billy Graham rally or something like that, right? Maybe there's a sense of fear, or of anxiety, or confusion, or, or paralysis even. Maybe a sense of, of curiosity and a desire to do it, but maybe underlying that there's this feeling of anxiety and the fact that, oh, maybe I'm not really qualified, or I don't know enough, or I'm not ready. I don't want to acknowledge that those feelings are real, like you're allowed to feel them, right? You're allowed to feel anxiety about sharing your faith. That is a thing. But I also want to encourage you that the love of Christ and the power of the Spirit gives us an, the ability to actually work through those things, to walk through those things. The love of Christ extends beyond you and me, and it extends to others. Now, we, uh, as we kind of think about this idea of evangelism, um, I think that there's a few sort of main categories or, or, or like uh, types of people when it comes to how we think about evangelism. And a couple of them are these sort of like dangerous ends of the spectrum, okay? So on one side of the spectrum, we have what I'm gonna call worldly Christians. Okay, um, and these are these are people who follow Jesus, and in a desire to reach people for Christ, they actually decide to go around their convictions and sort of leave them aside. And what happens is they take on so much of the the culture around them, or the world, or the world's values, or whatever, that they sort of cease to look any different than anybody else in the world. And that's one side of this coin. Okay? On the other side of the coin, there's what I will call otherworldly Christians. And otherworldly Christians are folks who follow Jesus, who out of some, for some reason, there's perhaps maybe a fear of being polluted by the world, or even a kind of a, an idea of, um, maybe this is just a little bit simpler and easier, we get kind of stuck in our Christian bubble. We get stuck over here and it's to the point where the only people that we're interacting with are people who already know Jesus. The only stuff that we're learning about among our groups of people are stuff that sort of reinforces what we already know. And we stop to be in the world at all. We cease being in the world at all. But the cliche is true. We should be in the world, just not of the world, right? We should be in the world, not of the world. And if we're over here and we're not in the world... That hobbles our witness. Who am I reaching? What am I doing? 
Now, those are two sort of extremes, and I would say that the people that you know, are over here on this side, who are like the, in the, the worldly Christians, they probably come from a place of, well, I want to reach people that I know, and I need to make the gospel palatable to them, right? And on the other side, we have people that it's probably coming from a place of like, well, I need to, I want to make sure that I'm not adopting all of these, all of these things that I know are contrary to Jesus, so I'm going to just kind of stick over here. And I would argue that there's a third way. And I think that Paul uh, embodies this way. And this is what I want to sort of like push us toward, is that we would become world Christians, become world Christians. We're not worldly Christians. We're not otherworldly Christians. We are world Christians. Because here's the, here's, here's the hard part. Here's the hard part about this. Here's the hard part about uh, reaching people who don't know Jesus yet. There's, there's two, two things. One, if I'm a worldly Christian, I can't actually reach someone if I don't actually live a life that looks very much differently from them. There's, there's, no, there's nothing for someone to grab onto, right? I, I'm over here, and if I look just like everybody else then my church is just sort of like a club that I go to and I hang out at and I, we, we seem to like, we have like a, a shared religious preference, okay? On the other hand, if I'm otherworldly and I operate out of a fear of being corrupted by spending too much time with people who don't know Jesus, how do I love someone who I fear? How do I love someone that I'm actually a little bit afraid of? that they're going to be dangerous to me in some way, that they're going to somehow compromise my integrity. So we miss, that. we miss the fact that it's possible to be in the world and not of the world. We, become, we want to become world Christians. Now, over here in the sort of like otherworldly category, I would put the Pharisees in this category. As they're portrayed in the Bible, the Pharisees were people who had this notion that their God cared so much about their personal piety, their holiness, their ability to like live a life that looks exactly like it's supposed to live, that they stopped actually being in the world. And they were over here. And they had a, a, a misguided idea that somehow they were going to do better for the kingdom of God by just sticking with their own little in-group. They felt that they had their convictions about who God is and what he's about, but they had to stop short at their convictions. So we can go around our convictions, but maybe we just stop short at our convictions and we circle the wagons and this is where we are and we have our convictions and this is, this is where we live, all right? When in reality, we can go through our convictions to others in love. Look at what Paul Lewis Metzger, who is a uh, theologian, who is actually a professor over at Multnomah School of the Bible, Multnomah Seminary, uh, what he has to say about Paul. He says, Paul was a world Christian. He not only traveled the known world of his day to places such as Corinth, Athens, and Rome, but he also lived in the world, even though he was not of it. As a world Christian, Paul did not go around his Christian convictions to engage with those outside the church. Nor did he stop short at his convictions. Rather, he went through his convictions to engage those outside the faith. 
Paul went through his convictions. He was so convinced, so dead set on the fact that Jesus is Lord, that he went through that conviction to reach out to people who were far from God in love. He had meaningful relationships with people who were outside the church. He spent the majority of his time as a missionary in places where there weren't any Christians to speak of. And the culture was difficult to be in. The culture was dangerous in some ways to him. But he was so convinced that he wasn't threatened by that. His convictions were rock solid to the point where he didn't have to feel fearful of the world that he was walking into. He didn't have to fear that he was going to somehow be polluted or dissuaded or convinced away from Jesus. He didn't have to be fearful that he was going to just abandon his convictions and become like any other person. He walked through his convictions in love to the people who were around him. Paul spent his time traveling into these places. So I think of his example. I mean, the love of God motivated him to do this. He allowed his convictions to shape his interactions with people to the point where they could see the love of God for them. Or think about this, the example of Jesus, right? Jesus spent time, his like precious, precious time while he was here walking around with people who society was like, those are bad dudes. (laughs) Those are bad people. Jesus, what are you doing, man? You're going to get polluted. You're spending time with tax collectors and sinners and people who are consumed by demons and people who are, you know, who are, uh, maybe they're, they're immoral or all this kind of stuff. You're spending all this time with these people. What's going on, Jesus? Why are you doing this? Jesus wasn't threatened by the people who he was spending time with. He simply loved them. And often, as he loved them, he would sort of point to them as examples because he would call these people into repentance, into discipleship, to following him, right? He'd be like, yes, listen, I'm not, I'm not afraid of the life that you've lived, so come and follow me, let's go. And then he'd say to the disciples that were following him around, see, look, this person gets it. They've left their life, and now they're following me. That wasn't so bad, now was it? It's possible to deeply, deeply care for someone. It's possible to have a deep and meaningful interaction and relationship with someone. It's possible to learn and benefit from from a relationship that you have with someone. It's possible to have your life enriched by a relationship that you have with someone who does not know Jesus yet. That's possible. And as we walk into those relationships, we have opportunities then to create space for them to draw near to God, to show them the love of Jesus, to stand in that priestly gap where we show the love of Jesus to these people. It's about relationships. It's about having a relationship with these people. So maybe, maybe, instead of giving in to the fear that we're going to somehow be polluted by spending too much time with people who are outside the church and circling the wagons and stopping short at our convictions and just being okay with that, we need to, like, 
stop being so satisfied in our own circle and move out into something that is actually reaching out towards others in love. Because what does the gospel do? It includes. The gospel includes. And maybe instead of letting our convictions go and going around them and saying, well, I'm just going to not really say this anymore or I'm not going to believe this anymore because I need to make the gospel palatable, maybe we need to hold on to those things and instead of going around them, just go through them and say, look, here I am. This is where, this is where I sit. This is who I am. And guess what? I love you. And I want to actually have a meaningful relationship with you. Those convictions are the reason that we go out into the world in the first place, right? We go through our convictions to engage with people who are far from God. We don't stop short. We don't go around. We go through our convictions. It's about relationship. Paul was so convinced that the, the people that God wanted to reach are the people that he was far away from. That he went to those people. And I need to be reminded that the gospel, the message of the gospel, the love of God, includes the people that I am least like. And it also includes the people that I like the least. All of that. Anybody who's outside my circle, right? The love of God includes them. And I can have, by the power of the Spirit, the ability to walk into relationships with these people that are deep and meaningful and life-changing and enriching. And those relationships are what lead people into the kingdom. I don't think that people very often become Christians because they want to join a Christian club. And because they want to come to a Bible study and because they want to, you know, be part of whatever it is that we're doing. I think that people become Christians because they experience the love of God through someone who loves him. I think that that is the greatest argument for the love of God that we could possibly give. So what would that look like, I guess? What would, what would happen just imagine this. What would happen in our workplaces, in our schools, in our, within our families, in like our gym class or our PTA meetings or our HOA meetings or whatever it is? What, what would happen if we started in those places to go through our convictions and engaged in meaningful, lasting relationships with people who were far from Jesus? What could that look like? How could that transform your witness? I think it would be amazing. There would be a, there would be a, a drastic shift in how people perceive what it means to follow Jesus. And what might that look like for us here in this, in this space, right? Maybe, maybe if you're like sitting here and you're like, okay, where are the spaces in my life where I'm interacting with people who are far from God? And if you're having a hard time thinking of those spaces, maybe it's time to start entering them. <laughs> maybe it's time to take a class or join a gym or join a book club or you know, sit with some other people at lunch and at work or invite your neighbors over for dinner or whatever that looks like for you. Pick something and start there. Pick something. Because who am I reaching? 
right? Who am I reaching? Lean into the awkward. <laughs> Lean into it. It's okay. Awkwardness goes away after a little bit, and you're fine. Or you can just decide not to care about how awkward it is and just invite your neighbors over, right? Like that, right? That's okay. It's okay. But we need, because of the love of God that compels us, we need to reach out to those who are far from us and engage them in meaningful ways. The gospel includes. It includes. And I want to be a people that creates space for people to be included. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us some amazing examples of people who don't just abandon their convictions at the door, who don't um, stop short at their convictions but who instead are willing to go through their convictions about who you are to reach out in love to those who are far from you. God, I pray that if there are people that we know that are far from you, uh, that you would begin drawing them toward yourself and that you would use us to do that. God, thank you for your love and thank you for the fact that you have called us into a place where we get to engage the world around us in a way that matters. Pray, God, that you would point us in the right direction. Thank you for loving us. We love you. Amen.